Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of our show sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Mentorship is 20 hours of top class online video strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes. Check it out and help support the show. Secondly, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming. Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore. And Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beast, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent continuing educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, you can check out the show notes to get links to all the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus 360 and the Altus Foundation coaching course, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before today's interview, I just wanted to let all listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel like you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you would be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling. Let's get into today's interview. This episode, performance consultant James Smith from Global Sports Concepts is back on with me for his monthly interview on the All Things Strength and Wellness podcast. On this episode, James discusses the importance of grammar and communication within the governing dynamics of coaching. As always, this was another excellent episode with James, and I hope you really enjoy it. Okay, James, as always, it is an absolute pleasure, and I'm always honored and humbled um, for your time and, and for you to take time to come back on to the podcast as you do because every time we do one of these the amount of information and benefit that not only me but all our listeners get out of this is tremendous and um, I always joke I'm always usually left with more questions than answers but that's always a good thing because it leads to further understanding so thanks again so much for your time so uh, maybe just for the listeners if you want to give us a little catch up on what's happened since we spoke last month is there anything new in the world of Jane Smith? Glad to be back. Thanks for having me on again, Robbie. The narrative essentially is a continuation of the previous one regarding what I have going on. Consulting ventures continue to evolve. Nothing materialized concretely as of yet. However, we are approaching that horizon. And without being more specific, the two landmarks on that horizon currently regard the professional level of American football in the NFL as well as association football overseas. Uh, 
and there's some some big plans in the works, but again, nothing instantiated as of yet. So as we were speaking off air, I said, if you have no expectations, you'll never be disappointed, and therefore I remain neutral on all on all fronts in this regard. That's uh, fantastic uh, news to know. <laughs> Uh, so James, the topic for today, and this is one I really wanted to get into, and uh, I don't know if, if maybe some of the listeners already may, may notice that I am trying to speak slower. <laughs> you'll you'll realize why as we get into our show today. But uh, I'm very much intrigued by this topic of grammar that you've brought to my awareness, and I, I very much would would uh, would love for you to expand on this topic of grammar. Um, so basically the floor is yours in terms of questions they're pretty much just going to be follow-ups as I don't really have anything particularly prepared because this is a topic that's really new to me but um, from what you've expanded um, expanded uh, on this topic to me it, it kind of started to fascinate me to a degree so I, I really love you just to take the take the podcast now as an open floor and, and just um, share your thoughts on grammar and why you feel this is so important in terms of communication well it's a binary subject matter as it applies to the context of what we'll speak about Robbie because on the the one half of that it is the subject matter on its own the argument that I make regarding the compulsory need for anyone who operates in any sort of communicative environment particularly one in which the information sharing is implicated in the development of others, such as teaching, coaching, any type of supervisory role in business, military, any possible influence, knowledge sharing, information development. The mode in which that information is conveyed matters. And as we spoke about off air, there's, there's an artery system, which we could follow any one of the rabbit holes down individually in order to argue why it's relevant to present yourself in terms of language cogently in a collegial context of thoughtful rationalism. And the, the farther we go down a rabbit hole, it's more likely that the debatability of what is discussed increases. Therefore, the, what we arrive upon is a philosophical framework in which the the efficacy of having the discussion at all is debatable. As you know, I, I prefer to adhere more to the subject matter that is either non-negotiable or something closer to that. And so therefore, I don't think it it is in our interests to become too abstract in any particular direction with respect to what's more fundamentally, in my view, non-negotiable, which is that the matter in which the information is delivered is of the utmost significance. An analog to this, of course, is in the sport context, 
it's much more than the motion, for example, that is performed. It is the way in which it is performed that is most strongly implicated in the nature of what comes next. Now, the other half, I mentioned binary, is that as an analog, the role that grammar plays in those who are familiar with my work, writing, videos, podcasts, etc., this this will be familiar to, to some of the listeners. Grammar is to dialogue as technique is to tactics. Grammar as the mechanics of language, the mechanics of dialogue. Technique is the mechanics, the fundamentals from a motion standpoint, because of course the, the psycho and sensory motor facets of demonstrating a technique must not be a foregone conclusion. And we can talk about them separately in no small ways technique a foundational element of what manifests as something much much more emergent as tactics whether it be in a sport or a military context or otherwise regarding the motion scenario so we can talk about grammar on its own and why anyone who is a in the public limelight on you know, podcasts, YouTube, television, what have you, why it is only in their interest to speak well for many reasons, but the more abstract we become, as I indicated, the more debatable it then becomes. And on the other hand, we have the analogy that I use in sport that is a refutation against the very existence of the strength coach industry. So as technique is the, is to tactics, as grammar is to dialogue, well, what might we discuss as being more fundamental to technique? What do we fill the blank in with when we say blank is to technique as technique is to tactics? What are the mechanics of mechanics in this case being used in more of an abstract way? The mechanics of technique. So now we are getting into on the motion side of that. So apart from psychomotor fundamentals, sensory motor fundamentals, which are utterly intrinsic to the mechanics of technique from a just emotion perspective, this is where we get into the implications of dynamics, energetics, biomotor outputs. What is it? from a purely motion perspective that allows a technique to manifest. 
And depending upon what that technique is characterized by affects that the architecture of its constituency. So the technique of manipulating a pool stick in the game of pool is much more subtle and fine from a motor perspective than scrummaging duties for the front row in rugby union. They both share in common, however, this motion architecture of fundamentals that's responsible for the, for example, the torque forces that our muscles generate across joints against bones via connective tissues to allow for movement at all to occur. Thus, we, so now I'll begin to combine the subject matter. If we think, why is grammar one of the first subject matters that is presented to a young person in any type of formal or homeschooled education? Well, this is one of the carryovers of the classical education to come out of Europe and the reason why grammar and rhetoric and logic formed the trivium. While the trivium no longer exists, we still have the after effects of it, thankfully, they, they have not gone to zero. And grammar remains something that is one of the most elementary subject matters taught to anyone with the opportunity for some type of respectable education, whether it's in a formal institution or not. And we know why that is, because it is the mechanics of language. Now, the example that I provide is, who do we know at, let's say, a postgraduate level whose subject matter, time, and attention in their studies at that point is as heavily proportioned in grammar as it was when we were all in primary school or elementary school, depending upon who's listening to this. Of course, the answer to that is, well, almost no one, unless that PhD candidate is pursuing a profession in which grammar plays a profound role. And we could can talk about different types of editorial work, writing, speech therapy, and so on, in which grammar itself is steeply implicated in the competency of being a professional, one of those domains to begin with as relevant as grammar is to forming intelligible sentences in dialogue and higher accomplishments as an orator, as a writer, etc. Clearly evidence shows us that it is not in any way compulsory 
for anyone to be a high achiever in. Otherwise, we would not see so many objectively terrible speakers in the public domain. Now, as to my criticism of the strength coach community, we understand similarly that the motion foundations of sport technique are implicated in the dynamics, energetics, motor outputs. Thus, what should be, and in fact was historically, but no longer is the case, is a commensurate introduction of the foundations of these various sport techniques in the, in the case of physical education. A cursory review of the internet regarding physical education, physical culture, 50, 60 years ago, will we'll reveal a host of black and white photos of what appears to be some aggregate of gymnastics and track and field. And this effectively illustrates what was at the time a, a broadly consensus approach to this form of foundational education hand in hand with why are most of our courses centered around grammar and arithmetic and these, these elemental academic courses that set the foundation for what's coming next, commensurate with that physical. Coordination, control of your body in space, relative qualities, basic biomotor foundations, careful approach to energetic challenges, etc. Now, I have to shift to the hypothetical because this no longer exists because in, in many formal scholastic environments, physical education at all ceases to exist. And if it does, it has by and large diminished to the, the periodic engagement in recreational sport games, as opposed to the foundational development of various attributes that are the result of gymnastics and track and field derivatives. Thus, hypothetically, if, similarly, as we mentioned off air, there's just no debating that the quality of speaking was superior in ages past due to the fact that the allotment of time spent in education was far greater regarding the mechanics of speaking. There were cultural implications. So on a population level, people 
were better speakers, articulated themselves more effectively in ages past. Due to the cultural implications of what was more heavily emphasized in school. Thus, hypothetically now, if we postulate that the in the same way that unless one is pursuing a career that's heavily implicated by grammatical knowledge and execution, we understand why it's no longer a compulsory field of formal instruction to those engaged in possession professions that are not steeply implicated by grammar. What we take for granted is that any of us whose professions are not decided by our grammatical knowledge or execution, we take the onus of responsibility upon ourselves to self-educate further to our needs. This is whether anyone has given thought to this or not, any executive, any president of a company, any politician, whoever that takes themselves seriously and understands the implications of speaking effectively, for example, we, we understand that those people are not under the dominion of a grammatical specialist. Now, whether or not they should be is a whole nother line of discourse. We understand as it is now, these people are not, which is in part the reason why there are so many individuals operating in the public domain who are by every objective standard, terrible speakers regardless of how intelligent they may be or accomplished in terms of business achievement or financially or sports achievement or otherwise, simply by the objective metrics that are assigned to quantitatively describe how well someone articulates their thoughts with the use of language. The, anal the analog that's coming here is Hypothetically, if the foundations of physical education were what they once were and continued forth, there'd clearly be no need for a profession to be based upon physical education, such as the physical preparatory community. It would only apply by analogy similar to the way that those who are involved in editorial work and speech pathologists, et cetera, specialists that have to do with that subject domain, the implications of the subject matter domain are powerfully implicated in the profession, decidedly virtuous. Thus, the only possibility for those operating in a physical preparatory profession to have work would be with professionals whose endeavors 
are so decidedly implicated by what is understood as the mechanics of physical education, which is to say power lifters, Olympic weightlifters, these strongmen, these sports in which the sport itself is a manifestation of fundamental physical educational maneuvers. The literal maneuvering of a barbell is the professional sport task. As we diverge into the spectrum of other sports, we have greater and greater distances that are separating the nature of the sport act from the motion with the barbell Mm -hmm. or with the resistance band or the cable or the, this apparatus or that apparatus. What this points towards is again, if the continuation of physical education is robust and diverse and wide and deep as how the host of other academic subject matter domains proceed throughout any type of well-structured curricula, whether it's in a scholastic environment or a homeschool self-education matters not. Simply a well-structured progression. If an analog of that continues with physical motion attributes, we see clearly there's no need whatsoever. And not only not a need, but no instruction should possibly be warranted or exist for any sports professional whose structure of sport itself is not so steeply implicated in the tradecraft of the physical educator. Instead, like any of the rest of us whose professions are not utterly decided by our grammatical efficiency in language, which is, which is in no way to diminish the significance, of course. However, our prof- professions are not decided. The, 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 the future head coach of England rugby or Real Madrid or the New York Giants or the All Blacks in New Zealand or the New York Knicks, pick a sport. Absolutely none of them will be based solely on their ability to form intelligent sentences or to speak well, not one of them. As to whether they should be or not is a whole nother line of philosophical discourse, but as of yet, that is not a criteria that applies to a single head sports coach, nor CEO of any organization that I'm aware of and so on and so forth. Now, the reason for my contention here, so what this means in practical terms, if it's not obvious enough to those listening, is that 
any professional Olympic athlete whose discipline, I've mentioned the obvious ones, powerlifter, weightlifter, strongman, there's some others. Those are obvious ones for the sake of example. Is not that or something close to it should in no way, shape, or form be under the dominion, and I, I state that with vigor to indicate quotations, of someone requiring them to do something that is such a distant relative to their sport act and its development. Now, the reason is because of the consequences structurally. Even if it was compulsory for a variety of sport and non-sport professionals to be required to improve their public speaking skills as an orator, the cost of doing that would be nothing more than time and attention. The same two variables are included in non-specific sport instruction in addition to the phenomenal structural consequence. So yes, time, yes, attention, and to that we add enormous physical cost, a price to be paid. And of course, that price becomes more extensive, the greater the intensity and the volume and the density of that which characterizes whatever the, the flavor of the day is to describe this profession. Strength coach, physical preparation coach, sports performance coach, whatever, it's all jargon. It's, the, it's what is being done apart from where there is the same amount to criticize as anyone who is familiar with my work recognizes sport practice. But these are the two primary domains in the context of serious prices to be paid by the body. Now we know that as I've raised the point it is absurd to have distinguished physical education, physical preparation apart from more specific aspects of sport preparation because of how deeply implicated physical motion is in sport practice. It's everything is plotted on a spectrum. So I mentioned the pool player earlier. So we have the pool player as an example on one end of the spectrum whose demands are in fact even more rigorous than the chess player who's further in that direction on the spectrum. And on the other end of the spectrum, apart from the purely obvious ones, which, which I'll no longer speak about, let's think about Olympic level wrestling. 
as just an utter manifestation of physical rigor that is nuanced with technical maneuvering that constitutes the techniques uh, that distinguish Greco-Roman from freestyle. Further, from judo, from the floor routine in gymnastics versus the males on the pommel horse or the rings or the high, bar, the high bars or the females on the uneven bars and so on and so forth. Context, context, context. So all somewhere in between on that spectrum, we have all the team sports, etc. All of which, it's just some more than others, have a scale, a gradation of physical implications, which is to say, take some layperson who has no sport history and engage them in a freestyle wrestling practice in a rugby union practice in a basketball practice and go on down the list and upon conclude now again is there is there much to to criticize regarding what these practices consist of absolutely yes however let's table that for a moment just given what is consensus understood as what these what an average practice consists of in these variety of sports let's take this layperson with no previous history or familiarity and put them through a practice of each of these sports and let's question them afterwards regarding the physical demand and in almost every sport if only at least in some part of the sport practice if not the totality of it depending upon who's coaching that practice and what day of the week does that practice typically consist of certain actions and so on that layperson is going to say i'm exhausted and de depending upon which sport it was they'll have a different description of what was so exhausting about it. Say in the wrestling, it was, my muscles were just on fire. Every muscle in my body was pumped and stiffened up and I found it difficult to move because so much blood was pumping in all the muscles of my body. Then on the other end of the spectrum, in say the Aussie rules practice, they were just wiped out from all the running. Because it turns out in this particular practice, they ended up running 12 kilometers of intervals just in the form of some scrimmage activity in practice. And anything in between regarding the nature of what is physically rigorous. So to think that we call something else physical preparation 
is absurd on the basis of that description. It's all physical preparation. And conversely, it's all technical preparation. Because name me a physical maneuver as divergent as it might be from a defined sport maneuver in which the way in which that physical maneuver is performed is inconsequential. You cannot do that. It does not matter whether we are speaking about the press-up exercise or the push-up to Americans in the context of a breaststroke specialist in swimming. There, there is no instance in which, oh, just do some press-ups. It doesn't really matter how you do them. Just do some. There's no instance in which that instruction is valid or justifiable. Not a single one. Because even the most, even if it's to a layperson, innocuous of maneuvers, let's say a, let's say a press-up is one of them, which it's not, but let's say that it is in someone unknowing. In fact, by every objective measure, has steep consequences based upon how it is performed. What is the position of the lumbar spine? What is the degree of shoulder abduction relative to the vertical axis and so on? And how does that implicate additional forces incurred by intravertebral discs, muscles crossing joints in the shoulder and so on and so forth? So what is offhand dismissed as innocuous in some air squats, some press-ups, do some jogging to get in shape, whether it's the ground contact dynamics and the subtleties of gait when jogging or the position of your arms or your spine when you're doing press-ups or, or whatever, everything profoundly implicated, profoundly implicated, And it doesn't require, because it's even, it's, it's intuitive even to the layperson that it, it actually, <laughs> it all matters, but the layperson will, will, anyone who might dismiss something as being innocuous, such as a press up would assuredly not carry that innocuous description to how the ice hockey player manipulates the stick in a slap shot or the nuances of the foot motion in association football that allows someone like Messi to do things with the ball that separates his skills from other players, or the motion attributes of a pole vaulter once the pole is planted in the reservoir, and so on and so forth. It's intuitive even to the layperson that you don't just offhand dismiss the technical nature of the sport motions, just a few of which I mentioned, whereas, whereas they very well might with, oh, I have a friend that wants to get in shape. Just start doing a bunch of press-ups every day. Do some jogging. 
do, there's simply nothing that you can write off offhand. Do some jumping jacks. There, there's, there's actually nothing, not even walking, Robbie. No one can responsibly write off, just walk. Say to the obese person, just walk. Build yourself up to 10 kilometers a day over the next six months. Just walk. If, if that's the only instruction without, but first let's talk about how you're walking. Let's talk about at the moment of ground strike where the, the heel is in relation to bottom dead center of the, the hips. Let's talk about the degree, if any, of external rotation at the hip that angles the foot outward at the moment of ground contact. Let's talk about the implications of all of this. Just walking. The point is, if it's not clear already to the listeners, there is simply no physical motion that is of greater consequence than, for instance, what I'm doing right now is talking with my hands because I tend to do that. It's, it's not until we get this down to this level in which, notice the criteria that I'm going to define here, the force implications of me talking with my hands are negligible. Unlike the force implications of walking improperly due to gravitational acceleration in one's mass, doing push-ups improperly, gravitational acceleration in one's mass, and so on and so forth. And it just so happens to be that the gravitational acceleration, which is, let, let's say, for all intents and purposes, at sea level, the same for all of us in all things, is that the mass of my forearm and of the digits on my hand are, are negligible relative to the force capabilities of my biceps and triceps muscle and forearm flexors and wrist, wrist flexors, extensors, et cetera, that, that allow me to, to move my hand around in space, which only Robbie can see right now on Skype as I'm doing, it's just negligible. I can continue to do this for the next six hours as we're talking, and I'm not even going to notice any soreness tomorrow from moving my hands around as I speak. Why is that? I just explained why. Unlike with this headset, if I'm wearing, if I start doing push-ups as I'm speaking to Robbie, it doesn't take long before you hear that. Now my breathing is becoming labored and the, the space between the words coming out of my mouth is becoming elongated because I'm catching my breath and I'm letting you know, okay, I'm taking a rest now because my muscles are on fire. And if I continue that for the next six hours, boy, am I going to be feeling it tomorrow and there's some consequences. Why? Well, we're, I'm mentioning kinetic considerations. We extend that to, to kinematic to become more specific and onward we go down that rabbit hole. Thus, the implications of any possible physical motions, the greater their intensity, the greater whether it's velocity, force, the density, the frequency at which they're performed, how voluminous the repetitions of motion consist of. And when I use these words even, we know that the implications of, if, when I mention, mention repetition and intensity, it's probable 
that those words ring more illuminated light bulbs to the strength coaches listening than to the sport coaches listening. And that's a further evidence of the dysfunction of the sport community because if I shift the jargon to jargon, now granted a repetition is fairly universal, yet when I go jargon specific, which points to the specific sports, so if I'm talking about double legs or wizards and wrestling as opposed to knee action or front side arm mechanics and sprinting to blocking mechanics in the shot or the disc. And I go on and on and on through different sports and mention the, the specific jargon where now the light bulb is more illuminated to the sport coach. Cause now I'm talking their language. What, what I'm now doing is just describing all the dysfunctions that exist that we've not unified the language to make clear it's all motion, it's all dynamics, it's all energetics, it's all biomotor outputs. It's simply where are they plotted on the spectrum. In, in this context, it's all the same thing. We can discuss the similarities that are not immediately obvious, particularly to the layperson, between the breaststroke in the pool and throwing the shot put. We can use the exact same language to describe those motions, the exact same language, utilizing the scientific notation. The only differences emerge with the jargon. We can easily lose someone speaking only in the jargon of Brazilian jiu-jitsu versus the, the jargon of rugby union. If we only use the jargon, think about the hundreds of maneuvers in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and every single one of them without exception is jargon. No matter how many red stripes an accomplished black belt has in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, if that individual knows nothing other than the jargon, they would leave a hyper-intelligent artificial intelligence or alien visitor who, this, who, for the sake of my argument, has no understanding of jargon, but only of scientific description or notation. They would leave this hyper-intelligent being utterly clueless as to what they're talking about. Because not one technique in jiu-jitsu is characterized according to its biomechanical implications. How do we describe the, I'm picking on Brazilian jiu-jitsu here, we can go to any sport. How do we describe the sport in the language of science? Lever system this, moment of inertia that, torque this, angle that, and so on and so forth. Now, 
is there a utility in jargon? Is it efficiency? One can make the argument, yes. I can just say, Kimura. I don't have to explain the subtleties of the orientation of my body on top of my opponent's the orientation of my arms relative to the opponent's arm that I'm targeting, the subtleties of the force and its direction that I am applying to the opponent's arm. I can just say Kimura. My argument is... What if the culture was started completely differently? What if at the very beginning, as far back as we have to go, the consensus agreement and first and foremost, the knowledge, which did not exist in sport, but it did exist in the world. Because we can go back to 1687 when Newton published his Principia Mathematica. And if we only use what Newtonian mechanics gives us, in regards to our understanding of motion observable, you know, on human practical scales, which is the reason why Newtonian mechanics is still profoundly implicated in all sorts of engineering and, and other endeavors, apart from those that are implicated by general relativity and quantum mechanics at the subatomic or galactic levels and speeds of light, etc., Newtonian mechanics is incredibly relevant right now and will be for, for eons to come in the domains in which it is most profoundly implicated. Mm-hmm. And, and we can use, um, so I'm going back to 1687 now, which predates every single professional sport by a few centuries. Because no I'm underlining the word professional sports began to emerge until the late 1800s. And even at that time, they were not professional. It's just that they existed. They were, you know, playing baseball and basketball and rugby. But the perfect, I mean, think about what rugby unions professionalization came in, what, 1995? The American sports were somewhere in the 1930s, 40s, the big ones, and, you know, onward from there. So we're, We've all heard me say it before. We are the cavemen of sport, all of us. We're we're existing in what is the first hundred years of the profession. And in the year 4,018, 2,000 years from now, they'll look back at us cavemen. They'll say, hmm, who was doing what? Who had published what? Who was speaking about what? Who had (laughs) researched what? In the first century of sport. Similarly, let's take an analogy for perspective. What implications do come to mind when we just used first century? What what is implicated to the historian when I use the words first century B.C.? The, the, the historical significance immediately localizes the frame of thought to what was 
the environment at the time, at what part of the world, what were the biological considerations, what were the climate considerations, the, the state of humanoid development, and so on and so forth. So I'll remind everyone listening, this is the first century of professional sport. We are the Stone Age. Now, the arguments that I supply in my most recent book, The Governing Dynamics of Coaching, is that it does not have to be this way. Forget about what has yet to be created in terms of knowledge and what has yet to be known. If we simply fully assimilate what is already known, just not in sport. I mentioned Newtonian mechanics. The question, let's, let's speak in orders of magnitude, each one being a factor of 10 more than the last. Let's take the governing dynamics of coaching as I describe them in the book, which are in sequence culture, psychology, analytical, intellectual advance, technique, tactics, sensory motor, biodynamics, bioenergetics, biomotor, physiotherapy. Those are 11 factors. So I've exceeded an order of magnitude. So I'll ask everyone listening. I just want you to hypothesize. I want you to conceptualize. What happens? I'm making the assumption that everyone listening is in some way related to a sport profession. Assume that all that is knowable in the fields that contribute to our cultural understanding, evolutionary biology, history, sociology, what about in psychology, psychiatric medicine, neuropsychology, neurobiology, neuroscience, neuroanatomy, neuromechanics, what about analytical intellectual advance, the realms of cognitive science and epistemology and analysis and logic and technique, physics, biomechanics, neuromechanics, tactics. As you see, we, be, we, we begin to in involve that which comes preceding, which is why I laid them out in the sequence I did in the governing dynamics. We have the implications of psychology and cognition and sensory perception in tactics. And we go on through the governing dynamics, we exceed an order of magnitude. So the question is, I want you to hypothesize what does that actually mean in practice if your sport organization improves quantitatively by an order of magnitude? This is something that, according to 
my knowledge and experience as a consultant operating at the international scale, I cannot speak to, I cannot point to a single organization in the world that I have knowledge of, which is, which is of course not to say that it does not exist. I just have no knowledge of one that satisfies the criteria that I, that I reference. Which again is to say the absolute cutting edge of knowledge in every one of the governing dynamics domains, in addition to the more fundamental specialty fields which comprise them. Imagine the equivalent of that level of subject matter knowledge being assimilated and holistically unified, which is very important, holistically unified, not factionalized as it exists in every sport organization, unified. Just imagine, what what does that mean? What is that sport athlete or sport team now capable of given this composite of knowledge that is unified and represents the cutting edge of what is known. That's just something for everyone to think on, at which point I can drop the microphone now, Robbie, and let's have you react to what I've stated. Well, I actually have a number of uh, follow-up questions, as I always do, but first of all, I think we've beaten Buddy Morris for the longest answer without an interruption on the podcast. Uh, he, he, he did it on Mike Robinson's show where he went for like over an hour. I think we, we might have beaten it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, as always, you bring up some intriguing points. And, and as I said, there is some follow-up questions. And it's kind of funny because as you speak, like I have a question. And then as you continue to speak, then another question formulates, another question formulates. So then I'm always wondering where I should start. But just off what you just finished on there, and this is just purely, maybe it's a little selfish on my part because I just want to hear your thoughts on this. It's going gonna, it's gonna to digress a little bit from the topic of grammar. But you just kind of spoke about there in terms of people speak about unifying these particular qualities that you outlined in the dynamic, um, the governing dynamics of coaching. And they speak about these qualities as being unified, but they rarely are in terms of, as you said, in terms of being factualized. Do, do you think in the future on a more global scale, just looking at how we run the world and society, do you think people in 2000 years time will not only people within the sport domain, but do you think people who are basically on planet Earth will be like, what were they doing back then? in terms of just society society, and, and how we currently run the world through our economic systems and, and the way we use the technology we have for wars and stuff like that. Because obviously, with all the known knowledge, as, as you would put it, that we do have, I mean, there is no need for us to live in a world, and I know this is a massive digression from our topic, but it's just, it just formulated in my mind, but I'd love to get your thoughts, and I'm sure there's listeners that will think the same. But with all the known knowledge uh, and 
accompany that with the technology we have like like it's 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 the exact same sort of subject matter that you speak to on sport but i'm i'm putting it out towards like the world and how we live as a civilization like what's stopping us from from doing that like what is stopping us from living in a in a far more unified world with all the knowledge and technology we have well to begin robbie we don't have to postulate what people what criticisms they might offer in 2000 years looking back which i actually write about in the book because it's it's happened throughout human history it's happening right now and it's always happened in the same way that we can look back 2000 years ago and criticize for instance something that sam harris has mentioned is none of us have to go back many generations I forget what the I forget what the consensus number is. Less than less than ten, in which the the a typical conversation at that time, for essentially any of our ancestors would have been what a good idea it is to bury your firstborn under the post holes of the house that you're building. And we don't even have to go back that far because we can do it right now regarding the absurdities that are being demonstrated by humans to each other, Mm. to animals, to the planet on which we live. So we don't remotely have to approach what might those criticisms be in 2000 years in order to demonstrate the evidence that they've existed since the beginning of recorded history regarding anyone who uses the benefit of hindsight and and even beyond that has the awareness to recognize the errors that exist at the the time in which they live. I've done, you know, my part in, in the book and on podcasts and so on to criticize all of the errors that I have identified and in, in I'm doing it now with a concurrently as I'm alive and operating as a consultant in the profession. And I'm certain that in the future, these will become that much more patently obvious to a broader population of people. What, what's unfortunate is that the, the, you know, this order of magnitude improvement that I speak of that any sport organization will have if they, simul- if they assimilate the knowledge presented in the governing dynamics and continue to criticize and conjecture moving forward from that point, that's a given. That's irrefutable. And that's only speaking about what is already known. Mm-hmm. The, the problem is that the, the typical trend, it's by no means compulsory. It's just unfortunate that it tends to be ordinary, that the, the trend for cultural evolution is agonizingly slow. Yeah, yeah. It does not have to be, though, because we have examples all around us 
in which cultural impacts change population level cultures in weeks and months. James, and just it, James, just before you go on, I think your microphone is hitting or rubbing off something, is it? Oh, that's good. No, there you're fine. Now. It was just rubbing and making a background noise. Continue. So we have what are typically world or yeah, global events tend to be those that are most profoundly implicated in cultural change the fastest. Mm -hmm. And we see those. I've referenced before the, I believe it was Brett Weinstein, the evolutionary biologist speaking about how the, the first large scale tsunami that, that had the, a significant impact on human lives in, I don't recall if it was Thailand, Indonesia, 10 years or more ago, how the word tsunami did not even exist in most of the cultures of the world. And only weeks later it did. So there was this, there was this cultural implication of this global, globally, the globe became aware of this event of great magnitude and very short thereafter, cultural change was instantiated. If we look at the attacks in the United States in September 11th, 2001, that had a cultural impact for sure. It, when, when we look at the, the radius as it extend from New York City outward throughout all of America and broadly all over the world, it's a bit more intuitive to understand how these cultural changes take place with profound acceleration, the greater their scale. And from that, it's important. What, what I would emphasize is there's a, there's a lesson to be taken there that we can do these things. And the fact that they're not done in the localized context of sport is self-deprecating to everyone involved. Evidence for them not being done is the factionalized existence of staffs and how they operate in relative isolation, how the constituencies of sport practice have remained largely unchanged for decades mm -hmm. and and on and on and on in terms of what has remained unchanged for decades and decades and de decades relatively speaking no matter which faction it belongs to and it the reason it has remained unchanged is not because it's so perfect that there's no reason to change it, but because the cultures are so agonizingly slow to evolve. And be, the reason for that is resistance to criticism, resistance to progress. Think of how frequently the, the phrase old school is utilized offhand in sport conversations and it actually is administered more often than not affectionately 
an affectionate way to excuse the fact that someone is actually resistant to progress. It's celebrated. Someone who's old school is celebrated because they tend to be hardworking, resilient, shoots from the hip, a straight shooter, to the point, no funny business. It, that sort of space of characterization is what is associated with what's, what's used, false though it is, as a compliment, Robbie. Old school. Derek Dinosaur. That's correct. The, the objective truth is that anyone who characterizes anyone else as old school, what they're actually described. Similarly, there's the Kimura and then there's the actual biomechanical description of what your body is doing to the opponent's body. So there's the parochial old school and then there's the descriptive resistant to progress repulsed by evolution unwilling to entertain criticism unwilling to reason that's what old school is and true enough to leave well enough alone Earlier, I made an argument for the profound utility and genius in the Newtonian mechanics, even though it does not apply to black hole physics and quantum physics and so on. It's profound in its utility, and it goes back to the late 1600s. So absolutely, leave well enough alone, but only if... It's well enough, and therein lies the rub. So just going back to the topic of grammar, um, I suppose a, and to be honest, even before I ask this, I, I kind of have a, a formulated answer or counterpoint to what I'm about to propose to you, but, you know, with sort of the more awareness that's been brought about by coaching pedagogy over the last year or two. Um, what comes to mind is like the work of Brett Bartholomew like and his book, Conscious Coaching, where you know Brett is kind of talking about the science of the art of coaching, if you will, so how important it is to be able to relate to the athletes that you coach. Just going back to grammar, um, I suppose the counterpoint that some people may make is having slang or sort of speaking with sort of the common vernacular that's around today helps helps you to be a little more relatable and to build trust with your athletes and those around you so i mean this is the question i, I was going to ask you offline and i said i'd wait till now because we just get into such good information that wouldn't be recorded and people would miss out but like you speak about public speakers who are not good speakers because of their their grammar and just their general style and, and how they've learned to articulate themselves but in one way does that not make them a little more relatable to their audience in terms of like if you do get someone and like you know as well as anyone you'll say this yourself that 
oftentimes people find it hard to uh, understand your points because of how you'd like to articulate yourself because you know in fairness you are quite uncommon to what is and I'm not going to use the word normal because that's not the word to use but what is common place with most people in terms of how they would say articulate themselves at a seminar or a talk or how they relate to other people but do, do you think that there is virtue to, to like having certain flaws if you will in your grammar as I say, a public speaker, so that the that that the audience can be a little more relatable to you. And then the first part of that question was, do you, do you think that there is a need, though? I think you you actually did touch on this. You did say that there could be a need to have some slang, but to be able to maybe to have some types of grammar that aren't like the greatest way to articulate yourself, because it does make you more relatable than say to your athletes, if you can if if you can like sort of maybe. Uh, if you can speak in sort of similar terms to how they would speak so again it's just kind of going back to a question of relatedness if you will if you think there's a need for that here's how you have to look at it Robbie you your question brings to mind a criticism that I had of a I'm not I'm not going to mention the name for professional courtesy, the, the, I criticized pers- personally, respectfully, of course, the high-performance director of an Olympic program who I heard give a talk that basically what, what, was, what, what, I, what I criticized was a portion of their talk which which effectively pointed towards because I don't want to mention specifics of what the actual subject matter was what I was criticizing was a point of their talk that was criticizing a or rather I was criticizing what they referenced that really pointed towards the dysfunctions of the sport community as a whole regarding that which I have criticized, the factionalization, the isolation, the specialization, the, the, the lowering of standards, which is, it was just, which is essentially what you're referring to regarding how one speaks and might there be a utility to, to lowering the, the standard in, with the purpose of connecting with more listeners. And that needs to be carefully sparsed because the same thing, like I told this high performance director was the same thing you may have heard me say, I may have said it before in one of our previous conversations, Robbie, people tend to have a very narrow conception. They, they tend to anthropomorphize locally to the extent of improvements, the status of things, progress, and in terms of the scale of not even a human life, but a professional career. Now, because the, in the vast totality of that, which I'm attracted to and influenced by has nothing to do with sport. And it's always been that way 
apart from the few localized, you know, the, the Charlie Francis and the Roshanskis and Isherins and you know, there, there's a there's a, a there's a few names in sport that have been very influential, and that's maybe a a single digit percentage of what constitutes my attention. The rest of it. It is all these realms outside of sport. And so therefore it's very easy for me to think as a, some type of a scientist would in geological or cosmological timescales. So that's why it's easy to postulate a few thousand years in either direction is, is, is very natural. And so what I, what I would say to you then Robbie is if in this infancy of coaching, Things have devolved, let's say socially, culturally, to the extent where no one is speaking in well-structured sentences. And let, let's say intentionally there's an effort made to continue to adopt, depending upon the population of the athletes with which one works, let's say, let's say it's in... New Zealand or Samoa or Tonga, and you have, let's say, Western coaches coaching there, and they're really assimilating the jargon of Tongan or Samoan or in any other area of the world in which you have an indigenous population or ethnic diversity in which localized to a particular faction, there's some real specific jargon. On the one hand, and again, this falls to that very short-sighted conception of progress. On the one hand, we could say, if I'm working with faction X that has this whole language of jargon and slang, the faster I learn and assimilate it, the faster I can affect cultural change amidst that population from speaking this very specific type of dialect. Here's the problem, Robbie. Let us not think about this in local scales. What happens 2,000 years from now if that's all that happens? How much more factionalized do you recall when you referenced to me in a previous discussion, it was some mathematician who proposed that we should all just be essentially using mathematics to communicate and not natural language? Yes. So I, I was actually going to, uh, I was actually going to repeat that to you um, yeah. in, in my previous question. So just uh, I'll let you speak now again. Uh, Jock Fresco, he, he actually was a futurist and inventor, but he brought to my attention that if the whole world just spoke through mathematics, it would really diminish the amount of misinterpretations uh, we have um, between, Precisely. Our, between our communication in the world. And he gave the analogy of mechanical engineers. He's like, you can have an engineer from China and an engineer from France and Germany and America. And he was just like, they would all understand each other like perfectly because they, yes. speak, they speak through mathematics, where if they spoke through their common language, it's like there's a lot of misinterpretation. That's right. And I, I speak, I, I write extensively about that in the book regarding mathematics being the unifying language of physics. And the, and the reasons for that is because, you know, as Fresco, it, it is unifying. So that 
conjecture is on the opposite end of the spectrum from let's all learn more jargon. Let's all learn more slang. It's the opposite because Robbie, all the let's learn more slang and beyond that, let's not confuse slang with bad sentence structure. I can, if, if I assimilated, I, I could speak using, let's say 70% slang, but still not riddle my sentence structure with speech pattern disfluency. So there's a big distinction there because I can have someone give a public talk who has essentially institutionalized themselves with speaking in slang and it doesn't matter which culture and they could quite conceivably administer a, a flawless grammatical execution of speech. It's just that, let's say their noun and verb selection are these slang words that most of us don't understand because we're not familiar. But meanwhile, the structure itself satisfies all objective criteria of, no, it's right. The noun's in the right place. The verb's in the right place. The adjective is here, et cetera. Would, the, the, would, sorry to interrupt. Would, would, would that be a, an analogy to then they execute the exercises perfectly, but they're not, they're, they're not the most appropriate exercises for transfer if we were to look at the sporting domain? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's debatable, philosophical, again, because this becomes deeply philosophical to say, well, no, I think we should all learn slang and jargon and proceed that way. Mm. The, the, my argument is that, no, the answer is no. It's only, it's only evolved that way because cultures in whatever locale we want to hone in on were wrong in the first place to evolve in that way. So again, the, it, it's sort of easy to prove this, Robbie, if, because the amount of knowledge that exists globally in a variety of subject matter domains at the beginning of professional sport was utterly profound. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, you pick the subject matter domain and I'll either rattle off to you or I'll look up who the geniuses were who had published volumes and volumes of information in that subject matter domain by the year 1900, by 1920, by 1930. Just an enormous volume of knowledge, accessible knowledge. Granted, there was no internet, but any library in, in, in any developed country at that time would allow one to have access to just a colossal amount of information far more than any human could assimilate in a lifetime at that time. So the, I state that because the potential existed without argument prior to the beginning of professional sport to populate sport coaches and staffs with phenomenally knowledgeable individuals. At which point, cultures and the cultural development on a local scale within mm -hmm. those organizations and broadly speaking in terms of sport would evolve much, much differently. So the only possibility for, in this 
very specific example that we're giving of you know the, the use of what type of language to communicate for it to let's say devolve to a point in which the opposite of unification the opposite of let's speak in such a way where any way we go in the world no matter the indigenous population we're all making sense with one another that's unification. The opposite is, let's develop 9 billion forms of jargon. Because that's what will happen in millennia to come if isolation, specialization, factionalization continues. Now, I'm, I make, that's perspective. It just, it just simply shows the trend of, okay, well, if we all decide to do that now, what happens in 600 years? If we all decide to work in the opposite direction of unification, what does the future hold? So what this brings us to, Robbie, is how we, if we zoom out a bit, and, and extrapolate beyond just how we, what language you use to speak to one another. It's, it's sport itself and its capacity to evolve. And why delay the process in favor of continuing along the path of dysfunction? Mm -hmm. it's, it's that you have to have a certain level of knowledge in order to appreciate that something's actually dysfunctional. This brings us to the knowledge horizon, something that physicists David Deutsch and others have elaborated upon. Everyone knows that you cannot see beyond the horizon. Now let us extrapolate to the, ab to the abstract. Now it's the knowledge horizon that none of us can see past and it is impossible to know the future despite the predicted accuracy of scientific prediction, no one to a certainty can predict the future. So, the, so the, the best we can do is approach the knowledge horizon as close as possible, but therein lies the conundrum where we get the phrase, the more you learn, the less you know. Now, this is why any child has such an offhand certainty in their response to what do you want to be when you grow up? Astronaut, professional rugby player, computer engineer, neuroscientist, whatever. Just, just immediate, no thought, I'm going to be an astronaut, that's what I'm going to be. Now the reason for that confidence is ignorance. And actually, don't let me forget, we're going to talk about the Dunning-Kruger effect, which exists in epidemic proportions in sport. So that child has an enormous distance that separates him or her from the knowledge horizon in absolute terms mm -hmm. regarding, you know, all the knowledge that is involved with astrophysics and astronomy and all the different types of sciences that go into astronaut education and aeronautics and on and on and on. That child doesn't know a fraction of it. 
And, and that's why it seems so attainable. And then you fast forward. Now let's say a young adult. So they know some more. And they know, okay, there's more to it. I don't just click my, you know, because as, as we know in every child, you know, the, the astronaut you want to be for most children turns into 60 different other iterations within the next few months. And, and that's why everyone tends to change their mind about 9 million times before they actually end up operating in one profession. And yes, there are those anomalies, the, the physicists who knew they wanted to be a physicist when they were 10. And yes, they do exist. The point is we have to, we have to conceptualize the lesson taken here from the knowledge horizon. So it's not until you begin to approach the horizon that you have understood that much more. You're that much more knowledgeable as you approach it. But the irony is the closer you get to it, the more keenly you are aware of all there is that is unknown. Hence, the more you learn, the less you know. The best anyone can do is attempt to get as close as possible to that horizon because it's always being pushed. Because with each new discovery, you've simply unearthed an even bigger problem. This is the nature of the knowledge horizon. So the farther away you are from it, the less you know, and the more reasonable it seems to attain any which way. But then the closer you get to it and the more knowledge you become, now you have a deeper appreciation for the complexities involved. And it's not until you get to the most knowledgeable stage where you have the deepest appreciation of the subtleties of it all and the magnitude of what has yet to be discovered. So generally, not absolutely, but generally, you get the greatest amount of humility coinciding with the greatest amount of knowledge and wisdom. On the other end of the spectrum, we have the Dunning-Kruger effect. Two social psychologists, Dunning and Kruger, coined this term, which effectively characterizes the more ignorant a person is, the more fiercely they will defend the substrates of their ignorance. Now, Robbie, you haven't laughed out loud yet, but you must be chuckling inside your head. And someone listening to this is going to laugh out loud as soon as I said that because they thought of someone who they work with who does that. The greater the level of ignorance, the more profound that individual will argue to defend their ignorance. <laughs> and this, this effectively characterizes what I would conjecture the vast proportion of sport. Well, it's a vast proportion of society. Yes, which is, a, which is a, a reflection of that. Now, the reasons, again, that's a whole other conversation of philosophy for why this is. But let us just understand perspective. So if on one end of the scale we have those who are the most ignorant and as a result, if they're demonstrating the Dunning-Kruger effect, vehemently defending their beliefs 
On the other end of the spectrum, we have reason. The most reasonable people, the most who have accepted and embraced criticism and conjecture as the only possibility to create knowledge. You're either reasonable or unreasonable or somewhere in between. And the more ignorant you are, the less reasonable you are and the less prone to evolve, to progress. So reason, knowledge, explanation must be the pursuit. Closer and closer and closer, the endeavor must be to approach the knowledge horizon. The offshoots of which are arguably infinite in terms of what emerges from such a pursuit. And I'll tell you this, Robbie, any any counter-argument to what I'm saying that might attempt to embrace and justify the, the lack of knowledge, the, the lack of the ability to speak well and, and whatever else, must not overlook the fact that knowledge is highly mutable while, you know, until artificial intelligence and otherwise is able to modify our brains and, you know, we can upload to the cloud just by thinking about it and so on. Until that point, yes, there are genetic limitations. Yes, there are, there's profound genetic limitations in terms of intelligence. Apart from that, Knowledge is entirely mutable. And in any domain, the limiting factor, such as the first page of the governing dynamics, my quote by David Deutsch, is not resources, it's knowledge. And nor by comparison, because it, it is a factor, but by comparison it's not, nor is intellect. Notice how I distinguish intellect from knowledge. If, if intellect is the hardware, knowledge is the software. So yes, hardware does constrain on how much software it can, it can accommodate, which is why genetics do constrain how knowledgeable someone can become relative to all other knowledgeable people in the world. Yes, that's simply an empirical truth. However, everyone can become more knowledgeable. And apart from the lone exception, I think I mentioned it to you before, the study that the Polish military performed in which they found that the optimal soldier is actually not that intelligent and therefore they are less prone to question orders, which again is a whole subject matter domain itself left reserved for a, a discussion of its own. Essentially, 
there's no excuse to not become more knowledgeable. And no matter what your genetic constraints are, that should be everyone's pursuit. And thus it is a misnomer to think it's an either or scenario, which is to say, no, 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 that's not a good idea to promote knowledge creation within the sports community to promote more effective and unified forms of communication. No, 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 that's not a good idea. Let's just all become fluent in, in slang and, and even beyond that, let's just intentionally either devolve or not learn how to speak more intelligently. So let's just do the, the opposite of all the things that, that James is saying because we need to container we need to we need to conform to the general population here that's a huge oversight robbie huge oversight because i can go to any community in the world of some indigenous or ethnic population that on the basis of our discussion here is prone to all sorts of jargon and slang and I can pull from that community absolute genius intellect, genius intellect, IQs that are through the roof, mm -hmm. male, female, any part of the world, any subculture, doesn't matter. So anyone who, who would propose a mode of intentional what I, what I would characterize as oversimplification dumbing down and even what's worse poor structure of communication anyone who would propose that is the very definition Robbie of naive and short-sighted because of what the future holds for a large enough population who agrees with that nonsensical form of thinking in the short term yes if I am a philanthropist and I have this agenda to develop as many physicists out of isolated tribes in Africa and the Amazon in South America Short-term, yes, I learn their jargon as a bridge to the scientific language. Short-term, what's in front of my face, okay, I'll, I'll bend to you because the nuances of a more primitive language are far less complex. Let me let me use a different word than nuances. The vocabulary is far less complex to to a primitive language than it is to what's modern day spoken in modern society or first world society. It's more primitive, so it's faster 
to acquire. It's faster to learn. It's faster to learn a language that has a vocabulary of 10 words than there is one of whatever exists now in, let's say, the English-speaking world. So as a very short-term solution, that's reasonable. But there is no longevity to that, Robbie. Because would, I, would, would anyone propose something so absurd as to, okay, now let's create a jargon word for every single scientific notation? No. The, 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 the language of mathematics is proceeding exceptionally well on its own and, and no matter how it diverges. For instance, Stephen Wolfram has projected that there is going to be a different form of mathematics that lies ahead that, that eclipses the utility of arithmetic and algebra and geometry and trigonometry and calculus and differential equations, etc. Something new lies ahead. It very well may. However, whatever that consists of will be consistent with what I'm referring to here. It doesn't matter what its architecture is. The, the mathematics, to the point of Fresca and, and any, anyone else who is, a, who is aware, the volumes of scientists and mathematicians and anyone else in the world who recognizes the universality of mathematics recognizes the absurdity in the notion of let's just create more and more factions of jargon to correspond with all this terminology. No, it's initially, sure, if I'm communicating with some indigenous isolated tribe that has no connection with first world society and modernity and all the rest, the first course of action is learn their language. However, in an effort to evolve towards this hypothetical scenario that I gave is I'm going to develop as many physicists out of all of them as I can. Guess what they're going to be learning? The language of physics, which is also universal because of how steeply implicated it is by mathematics. Because, in effect, it is the instantiation of mathematics to the practical world. It's, so it's naive, Robbie. It's ignorant. It's short-sighted. It's very poorly thought out for anyone to propose that mode of what I just described as the most short-term of solutions as some broad strategy. It's incredibly naive. In, in terms then of solutions to this, James, I, I suppose if we kind of go full circle here and back to this topic of grammar and communication, and I was going to propose, to, again, this was actually before we went online, but you mentioned this on our previous interview too, that when people are articulating themselves and they do the uh or the oh, or as you kind of put it to me before we went on air, the need, the need to fill space and silence. Yes. Um, my question was going to be to you, and then you actually answered before I, I, I uh, had an opportunity to ask, was do you think that's something to do with like anxiety or a fear at a subconscious level, possibly, possibly a coping mechanism, a strategy that someone has developed since childhood, and now it's within their subconscious part of their mind, and 
now it's just it's purely just habit and obviously it's habit because they do without even recognizing like uh or not that's I know, exactly right i i know i do it so it, it and there's probably a, an anxiety trigger a mechanism behind it but just in terms then of grammar and communication i mean what is the solution because i mean essentially it is the blind leading the blind i mean if you have teachers with poor grammar teaching students grammar i mean it, it is a bit of a snowball effect um so like what would your solution be to to this uh, how, how would you see that starting or, or being formulated the solutions are the same robbie no matter almost any, i cannot think of any offhand any subject matter that is an exception to what i'm about to say and i've said this before many times what what you and i are doing right now is what everyone needs to do now what you and I are doing now is actually much more powerful than what would happen if it was you and I in a room and no podcast recording because mm-hmm. it just so happens to be that however many people are going to hear this apart from you and I and the rate at which they'll hear it would be much faster than how you and I could communicate by word of mouth to others without the use of technology or social media. It's a conversation. It is this type of conversation particularly that I said this the other night because I've done a few consultations in the last couple of days. You know, Robbie, anyone listening to this, just imagine if the nature of what Robbie and I have discussed in this podcast was the nature of conversations happening in every social dynamic or organization on planet earth. Just imagine what the implications of that become. So Robbie, it's the difference between say, think of the conversation you have with me versus some other coach or consultant you have in your podcast. I don't know, but think of, what type of conversation and why, if given the option, would you multiply and deem fundamentally more important to share with every population that you could think of? Think of what and, and why. And invariably, you're going to, going to be drawn towards a conversation such as this one due to how more potently implicated it is in every conceivable facet of life. It begins with a conversation and the more people taking part in a particular type of conversation, the more Powerfully, that affects cultural change. So a tsunami can do it. A terrorist attack can do it. A president being voted into the office that's a total absurdity can do it. With speed. With speed. That's obvious. That which has the magnitude or the impact 
to start the conversation on a national level, on an international level, is is nothing more than a subject matter. And yes, there are complicated reasons for what allows different subject matter to impact and resonate more strongly with different populations. However, it's a subject matter. So again, I'll come back to, here we are having a conversation. And granted, you as the generous podcast host is affording me the podium from which to speak upon. However, it's a conversation and the nature of the conversation that is supporting criticism and conjecture and knowledge and cultural evolution is profound in terms of its influence over so many facets of, of the human experience and our effect on the world around us of which one isolated faction is sport, but it is no less applicable due to its universality. It begins with a conversation. Mm. So the more conversations like this one that occur, the more that scales, the faster the faction of sport emerges out of the dark ages in which it currently resides, no matter the short-sighted perception that its constituents may point to as being impressive from any more objective and global reference point, sport is tripping over itself with its clumsiness. And the fastest way to change that is to speed up and grow the magnitude of the amount of these conversations as they are achievable to have in every sport organization on planet Earth, in every flat and apartment and house on planet Earth, every corporation on planet Earth, every military on planet Earth, and so on and so forth. But in the context of sport, it's a conversation Because this is, in fact, the most, it is the, it is the, the vehicle that's most rapidly employed. Because on the other hand, I can say, well, it's easy, Robbie. Just put myself or, or a similar type of thinker in charge of everything. I'll become the CEO of everything, and therefore I can instantiate these type of practices in everything that I'm involved with. It's a very selfish and, and egotistical statement to, to, to say. However, it's true because if you put someone with the requisite knowledge and couple that with the cycle, moral behavioral attributes that allow them to be a competent leader in charge of everything, then you have the highest probability of the continuation of what they espouse. Just before you go on, I, um, I don't know. I, I, I'll actually must send it to you if you haven't checked it out because I do think you would really. I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, I really do think you would appreciate the work of Jock Fresco, who, who only passed away last year. I think he was 101 or 102 years old, but his partner, Roxanne Meadows, is still alive. They, they own a facility down in Jupiter, Florida. 
sorry, Venus, Florida. Um, and a lot of their work is there, but a lot of their work is online. But um, he um, I've, no, my my train of thought is just asked to leave me there. What was I going to say about Jack Fresco? Um, oh, oh yes, 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 it's come back to me now. So you were just saying there that in in terms of having this one individual, if they obviously were of the intelligence and also the moral aspect to be able to make the decisions for everyone in the planet. He basically was saying in his model of a um, resource-based economy, so the world would be a resource-based economy, not a monetary one, he often got the question, well, who decides to make all the decisions and, and where these resources should go? And he just always say science. He says we would take an inventory. He was like, we would put it through computers, like, things that didn't have emotions attached and that were purely logical. And he's like, we would, and it's, so he, he basically was saying that we would have purely objective results and feedback and that would guide us into what, what the world needed from a resource standpoint. So just kind of parallels what you're saying there in terms of you kind of said, if you could have a human with that capacities or those capabilities along with the moral one, I mean, if it was actually just artificial intelligence, the moral aspect wouldn't need to be even brought into equation because I mean, the, the, the artificial intelligence doesn't have a, doesn't have emotions or subjectivity to it. It's just purely it's a computer that you're going to put an algorithm into a mathematical equation in terms of scope for resources in the world. So it just reminded me of basically John Fresco has said the exact same thing you have, and you I don't think you're even aware of his work. That's correct. I'm I'm not, and it it's it's intuitive to a rational thinker. It's completely it's a completely logical argument, and let let me give you some examples of people who embody this. Elon Musk, the, the head of SpaceX and Tesla and SolarCity, is a physics undergrad. Jeff Bezos, who is the, the head of Amazon, just emerged as the most wealthy human in the history of humans. He's, he just exceeded $100 billion of net worth. He's a physics student. Bill Gates who I think is second to, to Jeff Bezos in terms of wealth and the head of Microsoft is a computer science genius. So l look at the common factors shared between these individuals mm -hmm. and the, the profound leaders and impacts they have not only on their companies, but on the world as a whole due to the magnitude of their achievements. Coming from this, whether it's formal or not, scientific mode of thinking. Neil Turok, who I've applauded ad nauseum with respect to his achievements. Neil Turok, who's a theoretical physicist for those who are unfamiliar. He has what, the African Institutes, is it? African Institute of Mathematical Science. Mm -hmm. He just transitioned out of his director position at the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics, in which he is now directing the cosmological unit in, I believe it's the University of Waterloo that has partnered with the Perimeter Institute to create, to, to bolster their physics program. And, and if I'm, if I remember correctly, Professor Turok is now directing that department. So th this is an individual who is a theoretical physicist who also embodies the same line of thinking that just has done such an incredible thing with the African Institute of Mathematical Sciences and his work in perimeter 
and what he speaks about in terms of the unifying of knowledge, the collision of ideas, the dissolution of groups and factions in favor of bringing more and more people together to share ideas and to create together and to criticize one another and on and on and on. Theoretical physics. So yes, I, I agree completely. And in, in, in that is, those are the, the reasons why due to the, the profound objectivity that is achievable. It's not a guarantee, but it's achievable due to the knowledge gain that's associated with, with scientific understanding. It's by no means the only possible route to this. It's just that it's a fantastically capable route. And that's the reason why I dedicate time every single day to studying mathematics and physics. It's for that reason. Just maybe just wrapping up here. Um, just wanted to add maybe more so some of my own thoughts because it just helps to consolidate kind of our conversation. Um, when you spoke about, you know, this idea of this knowledge horizon, again, this comes from Jock Fresco. I mentioned in Jock's work a lot today, just because a lot of what you're saying is kind of ringing true to what I previously studied and researched from him. But I actually had him on my podcast a long, long time ago. This would have been maybe 2012 um, when he was still alive and, and Roxanne was there. And a question I had for him at the time was, like within their Venus project setup, this this is just going to your point of ignorance so of, of the child saying astronaut because that's all they knew and they said it with such confidence. Like in their resource-based economy, they would say like all basically useless jobs would be gotten rid of. So they were like, there would be no need for builders or anything like that because he said we'd all have it. Um, like technology would take care of all of that for us and just the mass production of waste and all wouldn't be around anymore. And he's like, we, we have the resources to like, recycle all that stuff and make something like valuable from it and so the argument that they would get or the counterpoint would be well then what 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 if you have somebody who is a builder and that fulfills them and they gave such a great answer they said the reason why the builder is a builder and fulfills them is because they're ignorant that's all they knew if you'd open up that builder to science or being coming a doctor or something that would actually be beneficial to human evolution going forward they could have been like the next physicists or they could have discovered something amazing in medicine but the fact that they were only probably exposed to like a, a very um, minute number of opportunities from a working standpoint that they were like, oh, I like this. So I get some sort of what I, what I seem to believe is fulfillment. Whereas the fact that they were never exposed to anything more than that, they, they actually could have got far more fulfillment from another endeavor. That's actually only partially true because oh. I, I, I mentioned earlier how we have to distinguish intellect from knowledge. And there are ceilings un until the full-scale intervention of artificial intelligence into our brains. There are ceilings for what each one of us is capable of intellectually, which is to say it is completely irrational to propose that the whole of planet Earth has what it takes to be a high-achieving theoretical physicist. Mm -hmm. it's, that's absolute falsity. Uh, just 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 on sorry just on the defense of roxana jock i don't think that's what they're applying maybe i'm just not articulating what they were trying okay to yeah I, I i i accept that as being probable 
what we have to do is we have to break down the subtleties of each profession. Now, what, what we can do now, because even, you know, you said that was five, six years ago, what, what we know now due to this exponential growth increase of technological advance is that nearly every human endeavor is going to be replaced by robots, everyone. So while it's, it's more easy to think that the telemarketer might be the first to lose their job to a chat bot, what technology reveals to those of us who are aware of its achievements and the trajectory in which it's heading is that the, the most nuanced human professional endeavor is just as susceptible to being overtaken by artificial intelligence. So while it's more easy for most to intuitively say, oh, okay, the, the ditch digger and the telemarketer might be the first to go in terms of artificial intelligence or robots, the truth is the, the speech pathologist, the marriage family counselor, the sport coach, the physicist, everyone is going to be replaced, the potential for everyone to be replaced by general artificial intelligence that is orders and orders and orders of magnitude more competent in every conceivable way, mm -hmm. that's going to happen. Yeah. The question, the it's question all, is, it's, all, it's already happening in some industries. It absolutely is happening in some industries in which jobs are being diminished generally from the, the lower tier of intellectual creative rigor and more get created at the top of the tier. It's just that in the future, that tier might be gone altogether because of what is potentially in the capability of because artificial general intelligence has yet to exist we have we have ai which is in the in the industry jargon considered narrow intelligence such as alphago and ibm's watson that are these phenomenally capable artificial intelligence devices with narrow capabilities because of the constraints placed upon them by their engineers whereas general AGI, artificial general intelligence, which is the, the future and it's the one that's highly controversial in terms of though, I mentioned Elon Musk earlier, he's one of the most outspoken advocates uh, that towards the, this, the special care that must be taken due to his concern. Sam Harris is another one. These individuals are very concerned about what the future might hold for artificial general intelligence, where on the other end of the spectrum, you have people who are more optimistic, such as David Deutsch, and, and, the, and of course, obviously, realms of computer scientists and engineers working on AGI that are optimistic about what the future holds. But the point is, the potential for what is defined as artificial general intelligence is superhuman in every conceivable domain. Mm. And that does not yet exist, but it's going to exist. It's just a question of when. Yeah, but, but James, not even on a level of artificial intelligence. I mean, it's going to get to a point where we can just manipulate the human organism because we're at a stage where we can manipulate the human genome itself. Like we, We're all very much aware that we can manipulate our genetic expression from an epigenetic standpoint. But like, you know, current sort of accepted thought is, well, we can't change DNA code, but 
like a, a, a lot of a lot of the like a lot of people are hypothesizing. It's not even a hypothesis because they've proven this like in the food industry with with um with GMOs. Like I mean, they can go in there and change the, the genetic code of these uh, of these living organisms, and so it's going to happen to humans at some stage where they're going to go in and start actually changing the actual genetic code, not just the expression of it. But they're going to start changing the genetic code. And then you're going to have all sort of moral issues, like because it's all like, you know, let's say you have a child that maybe has a, a, a mutation in their DNA and they find it in the womb and like they can correct it. And it's like, you know, should they correct this so this child is born as a more normal operating, again, whatever normal is, but a more normal human being would just say for discussion right now. And then you're going to get like, obviously, the religious community will have you up in arms. And then. What about people who are very, very rich and can afford to extend their lives? And then you're going to have issues between the rich and the poor. And, and then That's just right. even, even going back to like this automation of like the sort of more mundane jobs that are sort of usually <laughs> occupied, by, <clears throat> occupied by populations who are lower down the uh, economic uh, class. So, they're, so they're, they're more socioeconomically poor. Like what's going to happen then when these people, there is no jobs in them and, and like, again the divide between rich and poor is just going to go bigger and bigger i mean it's just in in one way like you know obviously it's it is an exciting time in terms of technological advance but then it's just like what is going to happen to like basically you could say these millions of people who like i mean they just don't basically have anything to do (laughs) you know Uh, that's a topic of philosophical discussion in many channels oh i know on, that, yeah. on the on the genetic front if you're not all already familiar google crispr okay which which speaks towards the efforts being made to manipulate the genome and and what is in and what is occurring in terms of a full scale assault on the on the acceleration of that being attainable so while it's at the infancy CRISPR gives you some indication on the shape of things to come. And something that came to mind to revisit, just because the people may not be aware, you, you mentioned the reference Fresca regarding, you know, builder and the, the reasons why one might become a builder versus something else. There is a 3D printer that is an enormous size that has just recently printed a complete house i seen yeah i seen this right short of some subtle details you know windows door frames and the it's done at a fraction of the cost of conventional home building in first world societies and it has a phenomenally longer lifespan in terms of its durability amongst any variety of climatic considerations so so to those who are not familiar, what 3D printers do is they they print physical objects based upon software uploaded to it that indicates how with the requisite materials. And so mm-hmm. as David Deutsch and others have spoken about, once a 3D printer ha- has the resolution of a single atom, we'll be printing humans. Yeah. It's, a, it, it's a question of resolution. So houses are being printed. We've already been printing in in the laboratory human organs have been printed yeah, and yeah. successfully implanted 
I believe tracheas, lungs, uteruses, yeah. things of this nature. So, yes, that we all may ling ling that we all may live long enough to see what the relatively near future has to hold in store will be quite fascinating. We're we're basically going to be just taken over by a, another superhuman species. It's going to be like the Neanderthals and Homo sapiens all over again. This super, this superhuman species is just going to look at us and go, what a bunch of idiots. And so we'll, we'll, we'll be their creator and they'll just kill us. And it's going to be like Frankenstein. But uh, it's funny you, you mentioned that you mentioned that like the organs and tracking lungs because that's that's kind of where this technology seems to be evolving from is uh, a lot of the research going into um, uh, organ regeneration and then also limb regeneration like uh, like so there was a great work done by a guy called Robert O Becker back in the 70s with like electromagnetic frequencies and the regeneration of limbs and um, like he would like suppose the kind of question that was always proposed why can't a salamander go back its limb and why can't, can't humans like what have humans lost to evolution and basically one sort of hypothesis put forward is that the higher the higher the neurological development of the species kind of towards this towards the, the the proximal areas of the body so brain and spinal cord the less neurologically efficient they are at regeneration in the periphery so obviously a salamander just a reptile so they, they were sort of hypothesizing that the fact it was less neurologically developed as a human, it, it had more regenerated capabilities if it had a limb cut off, whereas humans have put more resources towards their actual brain and spinal cord, and so that, well, obviously their brain maybe, uh, and that they kind of sacrificed like the neurological regeneration capacities in the periphery, because apparently if a baby, a human baby, loses the top half of its finger within like the first month or two of being born, it actually will regenerate, but beyond that, it loses that capability. But Becker proved that if you were to put limbs in a certain electromagnetic frequency, that they could regenerate perfectly well. Like, so like he would put like people who had like really bad like injuries to an extremity, like a burn or something, or like they just literally had like a, a diabetes neuropathy in their legs. So they basically just had like a gaping hole in their leg, and he would put like this tinfoil uh, mechanism around it and put an electromagnetic frequency, and all the tissues would just start to like regenerate perfectly like all like the capillaries and veins and arteries and the bone and the, the cartilage and the connective tissue all that so but from from that sort of research from people who are looking at limb, limb, limb regeneration it's uh that seems to be like one of the driving factions that well shit if we can regenerate limbs surely we can regenerate like whole bodies and i wonder now if we can manipulate dna codes and like create superhuman so it's uh it really is sort of fascinating um just one, one final thing, James, um, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. I mean, the one great thing about uh, about our conversations and our podcasts is it always leaves like so much more scope for more discussion. So obviously we'll be having you back on next month and, and we can delve deeper into some topics. You've mentioned all like these criteria you put into your, uh, your uh, Govern Dynamics of Coaching. Um, and just going back to this of, knowing what's known with, with the knowledge that's already out there and that's already attainable like i, I don't want i'm not going to make any assumptions here because i can't be in your mind and what you're going to say but is there like do you fully accept that the the, the dynamic the, the dynamic the governing dynamics of coaching i always get your title always confuses me because at the you know that we have your subtitle the unified theory of sports beverage i always like get the first one and the bottom one and mix them in my head sometimes so I, I stammer a little bit but with the government dynamics of coaching do you feel that there there is elements missing to that because there's knowledge out there that you just don't know of yet that may that may actually add to that once you once you become aware of it 
Unquestionably, yes. Okay. And that must always be the case because let us let us not forget the, the, the profound ignorance that anyone would be, would be de demonstrating in stating, I have arrived, I have all the answers, and here they are for you. So basically there's going to be a second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth edition. <laughs> well, the I, I, I'm already writing something else. The, the point is I, I wrote it to start the conversation, mm -hmm. to, to offer a resource, to completely reform academia and the whole process of developing coaches, all, all of it to create the profession of theorists in sport and sport engineers and so on. You know, the, there's, there's more than one reason. The, the point is just like any resource, because that's all the book is, it's a resource, is to stimulate further yeah. criticism, further conjecture. Because that's what evolution is. That's precisely what it is. So the, the, again, the most that anyone can do in their own way is approach that horizon or horizons that constitute the, the knowledge that they are after, and in the case of those of us who decide to, to write about it, that's what you're getting. You're, you're getting an example of that. And you take the, the sum total of all these different resources and find those are great tools. Nothing gets created without the criticisms and conjectures, and that's why in the closing statements of my book, I encourage every reader to criticize what I have written. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and that's very much a common theme of all the great thinkers throughout history in terms of they were always open to criticism to their ideas and thoughts because they realized that, again, as I just mentioned, that is the essence of evolution. We spoke about this in one of our more earlier podcasts that if you look at evolution, evolution is this concept of coming up against a constraint and then realizing that I'm going to have to evolve here and come up with a new solution that's not in, even in existence yet to, to come around this and then evolve again to the next standpoint where a constraint is made, and so goes the process. Well said. James is shaking his head. That's good. That's good. When I have James nodding, that's a, that's a good sign. Uh, so, James, listen, once again, fantastic episode. I have many, many thoughts. I, I have... Many other questions I can ask and topics going forward in future, uh, for future episodes. Just wrapping up again, um, obviously give the contact details. And also, I, I think you may have mentioned this on, the, on our last podcast. Uh, I think you just mentioned that things were changing, but have things changed over at Global Sports Concepts? What's going on there with the, conca the, the conclave and, and uh, the video series and whatnot? I ended up leaving things relatively unchanged The for, for those who are curious about what you've asked me the the conclave on my website the website is globalsportconcepts.net and the conclave is the pay section in which there is a discussion framework that i've created I, I call it the conclave and i've got a large culture written up that that essentially is was done to ensure that the type of dialogue that's generated on it is essentially an analog of what it Robbie and I have been doing on these on these podcasts in that it is 
a prerequisite to contribute is careful thought and rational thinking and non-factionalized representations of what one does for a living. And amidst that is where I post all of my lectures that are created specifically for the website. So they're, they're generally 15 to 30 minutes video presentations, and there's almost 90 of them at this point. And I went back and forth with some ideas on whether I wanted to continue it or change it. And based upon a few members who sent me messages regarding their, their really well thought out proposals, I've decided to essentially keep things as they are and make some modifications as they go. Great. That's great stuff. Yeah. Cause even when you sent out the email and I saw it, I was kind of like, I was going to be like, Oh no. I was like, I kind of don't want them to get rid of it either. So that's kind of good. But as always, I'll put all those, uh, all that information into the show notes in terms of your website, where people could connect with you and contact them. Um, any more speaking engage, speaking engagements coming up? I know you, last time you mentioned stuff with, with uh, the the closest one on the horizon is actually in a few days. I'm going to be flying to Philadelphia to there's a association football convention, and I'm going to be meeting with individuals there with regards to endeavors that are forthcoming. Beyond that, though, there's there's nothing specific that I can speak of publicly yet that is that is scheduled. Uh, finally, just, just just to consolidate one point, and it's just to make sure I, I got this right, when you were speaking about grammar and then you were comparing to like uh, the technique of tactics, and then with technique you were even you even broke that you even brought that back to like kinetics and kinematics and 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 uh, other sort of areas within technique. And you sort of alluded, I just want to make sure I got this concept right in my head, that if you were to perform physical tasks with poor technique, there's a, there's going to be a consequence because it seems like, you know, gravitational forces and forces in the body. So basically injuries to the organism and the structure of the body, and, you know, forces put through tissues, etc. But the fact that if you speak with bad grammar, you were saying, you were like, look at me, I use my hands, but like it's negligible. There's no like gravitational like impact happening. So like, were you sort of articulating that because of, like poor grammar doesn't have the same, it doesn't have the same like detrimental like impact to the system in terms of, like a, a physical, a, a physical detriment in terms of, like it's not it won't lead to like an, an injury mechanism that like people are less attuned or aware to it and the fact that this continues poor grammar means that we can't communicate well to each other which then obviously is going to be a constraint when it comes to force reforms from people. It's, it's it's that in addition to the alternative which is that. There's no physical cost to improve your grammar. Yes, that's yeah, yeah. And hence my refutation for the very existence of the strength coach again, because if given the hypothetical that everyone is foundationally well educated in the in these mechanics, physical mechanics of technique in sport, then by the time you arrive to the whatever club level, university level, certainly professional Olympic level, there, there is no strength coach just in the same way that Robbie is not getting off the podcast now to go spend two hours with his grammar specialist who is requiring Robbie mm. to perform lessons in grammar 
that he has little agency over. Instead, it's, hmm, James said something. It sparked Robbie's interest. Robbie decides to Google something on how to eliminate speech pattern disfluency and does it on his own. So similarly, I'm playing for the so-and-so national team. I don't have some strength coach that I'm required to go to who's going over what we'll use as the analog literacy, elements of literacy with me. I, I simply work on my sport preparation with my sport engineer and global load manager and tactical so-and-so. And if, similar to the Robbie example I gave, I'm looking to advance nuances of my sport execution, I can take it upon myself to educate on those new, educate myself on those nuances because of the foundational education I have and all the contributing mechanisms. Yeah, perfect. James Smith, you are a heartbreaker to many professionals around the world, <laughs> but in a good way. Yeah, it, it'll it'll be the it'll be those people in two thousand years time who look back and say there was this one guy called James. He was the only one making sense, and for some reason, just not enough people listened. <laughs> that would be, uh, that would please me to know that. I know, uh, James, fantastic, and uh, we looking forward to our conversation for the next one. So, guys, I mean, I don't have to say too much here. As always, another fantastic um, episode with James, over two hours, and. Uh, like I'm always, my head is always a little bit scrambled at the end, but I'm so appreciative that James takes the time and, and gives us so much information and, and it's just, it's fantastic. So James, I always really appreciate it. So for the listeners, thanks very much. I'll talk to everyone soon. Take care, be well. And as I say, at the end of every show, stay strong. Mm-hmm.